Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Alrighty, how we doing? Isn't that so good? I appreciate everyone warming it up. I feel like we already had like 10 sermons already. It was great. It's so awesome to hear what God is doing, what God has laid on our hearts. Uh, for those of you who are, that are new, I'm Pastor Joey. I want to say welcome, and we believe everyone matters to God. So there's a reason why you're here, and we pray that your time with us is an encouragement to you. I believe that if you come every week with an open heart, you'll leave differently. You come the same, but you leave changed. Because Jesus is here, and God is with us, and he has something for you today. Uh, we're in week five of our series, Jesus. I don't know if you knew that, but that's what it says back there. Uh, Jesus, and uh, we're rediscovering who he is and really the impact that he has made in the world, why he is the most important figure of all of human history. And I love that he's my favorite person to talk about. He is the reason why we've rediscovered the meaning of life. He has shown us that there is an uh, equality to uh, human life. There, there's no group or people group or, uh, or sect that's better than anyone else. Everyone is equal in the sight of God. There's value in human life. He's restored how to have healthy relationships between the sexes and the ways that we have broken down over the course of human history. Um, and uh, he has the definition of righteous government. He is the king, the prince of peace, and he leads us into freedom. And uh, he's the reason why America itself has had such an uh, impact in the world. And today we're going to see that he is our teacher. Somebody say our teacher. Jesus is our teacher. If you read the New Testament, one of the things you'll see Jesus do over and over and over again is teach. He is our teacher. Now, if we go back to the founding of our public education system, it's not wildly known but public schooling didn't arise until the 1900s. So public school is really a recent phenomenon. If you think about the course of human history. Like many of us, we grew up and that's just what we did. So we thought like this has just been the way things have been uh, all the time. But it really isn't. Prior to public education, education was confined to private schooling in various forms. But most prominently in Protestant schools or Christian Bible schools. This is a historical fact. In an article from BoardingSchoolReview.com, they cite that the Bible was the focus of learning in colonial times. Most lessons were practical ones learned in the home and in the fields. So your primary education was what makes you successful at home, in your job, and as a follower of Jesus Christ. That was the primary education of most people. Dr. Lawrence A. Kremen, a distinguished scholar in the field of education, he's quoted to have said that during the colonial period, the Bible was the single most important cultural influence of the lives of Anglo-Americans. The Bible. So we live in a culture in a day where we are trying to distance ourselves from faith and try to reimagine history as if God wasn't at the center. But Jesus has always been at the center of education, of public education. John Falwell, he's uh, the son of Jerry Falwell, the, founding, the founder of Liberty University. Uh, John is now the campus pastor of Liberty University. He says 
that when one considers our nation's educational foundations, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and most of our respective institutions were originally Christian institutions. They were Christian schools. He says most of our respective institutions were originally Christians. It becomes evident why we as Christians maintain a passion about remaining true to the foundations of Scripture. What has catapulted America, what's catapulted our world in education, in discovery, in all the different respects, at its heart is the Christian faith. Now it's true, in the beginning these schools were primarily Christian, now these titans of education are secular, atheistic institutions. And many would argue in our world today that in order to be a Christian, you have to check your brain at the door as if education and faith cannot coexist. That, that science and faith cannot coexist. Faith and reason are on opposite ends of the spectrum. But most of our brilliant scientists of our time that have made discoveries that have catapulted us into the modern era, men like Galileo, they were firm believers in Jesus Christ. And it was their faith that led them into discovery. Uh, Isaac Newton is well known. He discovered the laws of gravity. Remember what he was famous for saying? What goes up must come down, right? We, we know this about Isaac Newton. But Christianity Today had an article about Newton. And they say for Newton, the world of science was by no means the whole of his life. He spent more time on theology, the study of God, than on science he wrote over 1.3 million words on biblical subjects. When we think of Isaac Newton, we don't think of Jesus. We think of gravity. We think of science. But what was more important to him than his educational endeavors was God Almighty. The discovery of his theological works weren't uh, published until 1936. So if you think of his impact. Now, Newton's understanding of God came primarily from the Bible, which he studied for days and weeks at a time, they say. He took special interest in miracles and prophecy, calculating dates of Old Testament books and analyzing their text to discover authorship. In a manuscript he wrote on rules for interpreting prophecy, Newton noted that similar goals of the scientist and of the prophet, uh, prophetic expositor were the same, simplicity and unity. He condemned the folly of interpreters who foretell times and things by prophecy since the purpose of prophecy was to demonstrate God's providence. He had a thing against people like trying to put a date on the rapture of the church or, or things of future events. Because prophecy is to show God's providence. And like Pam said, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So it all points to Jesus. But what's interesting is he spent his time studying the scriptures. What what led this brilliant man in studying the scriptures, especially in the area of prophecy, to look at the known universe, to look at our natural world, to discover the glory of God? In Genesis 1.14, this is a verse he might have come across maybe in his Bible reading. It says, let the lights appear in the sky to separate day from the night, and let them be signs to mark the seasons and the years. From the very first chapter of the Bible, God is telling us that he didn't just create creation so that life can exist, but he had a purpose for creation, and the stars in the sky are for signs and for seasons. There is a prophetic revelation that you can discern by looking at the sky. 
And many are trying to interpret this guy using the zodiac signs. You ever heard somebody say, what's your sign? Hey, bro, what's your sign? What's that mean? That means I'm trying to get revelation apart from God using God's creation that was designed to tell about God, namely Jesus Christ. But this is the nature of God's creation. In Proverbs 25, 2 through 3, it says, God's privilege is to conceal things, and the king's privilege is to discover them. No one can comprehend the height of heaven, the depth of earth, or all that goes on in the king's mind. If you know about King Solomon, he was the wisest man to ever live. God gave him a wish. You ever think about that? If God showed up one day and said, I'm going to give you one wish, whatever you want, I'll grant you whatever you want, what, what would you want? Have you ever thought about what would you ask for? What would you ask for? I've thought about that from time to time. Now, when I was a kid, I thought about, well, I would like to fly like Superman. That'd be pretty sweet. You know, you think about these, these fleshly things, natural things. Solomon, he asked for wisdom. He's like, I don't know enough to lead your people, so God, give me wisdom. And God gave him the wisdom of God. He had more wisdom than anyone else. And because of that wisdom, God actually blessed him in every other way. He was richer, more famous, more renowned than any other king to ever live. And so this is Solomon. Here Solomon is saying... He's like, God's privilege, God's desire is to conceal things. Does he want to hide information from us? No. But he's calling out to us to go discover what? How big he is, how great he is. No one can comprehend the height of heaven or the depth of the earth. That's what he's saying. He's saying God's creation is so vast, so large. The psalm says the heavens declare the glory of God. That when we look at his creation, what we're seeing is the majesty and glory of God. And these concepts, these realities are what drove these men uh, into the sciences, into discovery, into education to really discover even more of our great God. God is so big and so great. And what Solomon is saying is, you'll never get to the end of understanding who he is. You'll ne you can't know it all. He's too big. And we have all of these uh, scientists and researchers that think they understand how the world was made, that there was a big bang two billion, six billion years ago, and then everything kind of happened by happenstance and by accident. Well, what we also know is that the rate of expansion of the universe is such that if we were to rewind time, the time that they said the earth was created, there's not enough time to get the expansion. Our, everything would collapse in on itself. It's kind of amazing how the Bible tells us one thing, but science confirms it's true. In Psalm 145, 3 through 4, the psalmist says, Great is the Lord, he is most worthy of praise, and no one can measure his greatness. You can try, you can search, you can seek, you can discover, but you'll never get to the end of God's greatness. And this awe and wonder is what continued to compel people into the sciences, into discovery, into to discover the vastness of what God has created. But no one can measure it, no matter how hard we try. The folly of man is to believe that we're capable of understanding the infinite complexity and reality of creation. This is why we have sciences like metaphysics and physics and, and quantum physics and and all these other things we're trying to use to discover what God has created, but we still haven't figured it out. We can grasp some things. We can discover new things every day. But every discovery we make rewrites what we always once knew. Every new discovery that's made helps us understand 
reality in a new way, and it often helps us re-understand things we thought we once knew. Uh, this past week, I mean, I, I love biblical archaeology. My nerd is getting ready to come out, so bear with me. Man, I love archaeology. If, if I could have picked another profession, I would have been Indiana Jones. That's what I would have been. Um, I just, I love archaeology. This week, a man named Scott Stripling, uh, he is a, the provost and, uh, and resident archaeologist at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. Uh, he's a professor of biblical archaeology. He took his team to Israel uh, during the off-season, during the winter months, because they have to train their trainees that are learning the archaeological field. They have to find stuff to do. And so if any Christian biblical archaeologist, what you want to do is you want to go to Israel, because that's where all the cool stuff is. And anywhere you dig in that land, you find you know, interesting things. And, and so he went to the place called Mount Ebal, it's the location of Joshua's altar. In the Old Testament, after they wandered the desert for 40 years, they came into the promised land. Jericho's walls fell, and they conquered Ai. Uh, the, God told them to rededicate themselves. And so half of the nation went on Mount Ebal. The other one, I think, is, uh, um, I can't remember the other name of the mountain. I think it was Gerizim, but that might be in a different location. But they separated themselves on two different mountains, and they announced blessings and cursings, recommitting themselves to the covenant of God. And then Joshua offered sacrifices for the people there uh, on the altar. And they recently discovered the altar. Uh, Adam Zertal is an archaeologist that discovered that. And they had uh, kind of excavated the area. And he didn't want to lose any material. Uh, and this was years and years ago. Adam Zertal has uh, now since passed away. But they stored all of the garbage from this dig in these canisters in different locations because they didn't really have time to do a thorough job and they thought they would come back and revisit it and different groups have come out and, and taken a look and so Scott Stripling took his team during the off season where they didn't have really much to do just to do some training on some of their uh, processes on how to uh, wet sift uh, material to discover you know product that was buried under dirt and everything else and what they found was a tiny tiny cursed tablet made of lead it was inscripted it was folded over on itself and it was so brittle that they couldn't open it and so they sent it to two different locations to be dated and also scanned so that they could see if there was any writing on the interior of the tablet and what they found was an ancient form of hebrew that predates any other form that they have on record it also predates any written language that we have on record from any nation anywhere in the world so whereas the Phoenicians are called the fathers of written language, this, this tablet predates even that, pointing to Hebrew, the language of the Bible, the scripture being the first recorded language in all of history. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. And when they get the, uh, this peer-reviewed and it's verified, this is going to dramatically change our history books. They will no longer be able to say the Phoenicians began the alphabet. They're going to have to look to the people of God who wrote the word of God and taught it to their people. It's incredible. And what promoted this discovery? Faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Scriptures. That's where the, the modern archaeology comes from. The biblical archaeology essentially has driven this entire field. 
It is the Christian faith that stirred stripling on. It's the Christian faith that continues to influence uh, many of educated society today. John Falwell is also noted uh, to um, speaking about Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation. Um, Martin Luther said or emphasized from the New Testament the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, meaning that now everyone who believes in Jesus Christ is a priest. In the Old Testament, it was just a certain tribe of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Levi. Now in Christ, we're all priests. We're a royal priesthood. Matter of fact, we're called peculiar people. Anybody feel a little peculiar this morning? Yeah, my wife calls me peculiar from time to time. Now, but we're peculiar, why? Because we're the priests of God most high. That's what we are. And Martin Luther's emphasis on us being the priesthood came with it a belief that every person needed to know how to read and write so they could study the scriptures for themselves. And what came out of that is a now literate society where that wasn't an emphasis before. Now it was becoming mainstream. And so the literacy uh, emphasis came through the Christian faith. And so though public education began with a heavy Christian influence, what do we see now? We see a departure from that very founding. Uh, it, John Ortberg he write, wrote a book called Who Is This Man? Also talking about Martin Luther. This is actually quite funny. Martin Luther is talking about parents who don't take the education of their kids seriously. This is kind of like a new thing in his, in his culture. But here's what Martin Luther said. He said, I shall really go after the shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are not parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young. This was a man of God, a preacher, well-known. I would really love to see how that worked on gaining membership to his church. It was quite funny. But this was his mentality. He was taking it so seriously that for you to neglect the education of your children, you were essentially denying your own faith. Because how else are you to train up and teach your, your kids to revere and honor God? Ortberg also notes that in America... The law that passed that made universal education mandatory was first passed in Massachusetts in 1647, leading to the development of the first public school, which focused on the humanities and taught Greek and Latin. Greek is the language of the New Testament manuscripts, and Latin was the predominant linguistic translation of the Bible in the Catholic Church. So you can see the influence that even it had at the founding. But in 1647, this law, believe it or not, is called the Old Deluder Satan Act. In American society, in the nation of our country, it was called the Old Deluder Satan Act. This was led by the Puritans that were here, that were uh, largely um, influential in our nation. And why was it called the Old Deluder Satan Act? It was to keep... It was the chief product of the old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures. That was the whole point. They recognized that the work of the enemy was to keep men from the knowledge of God, from knowing the scriptures. And so they created this law so that men could be free to know, to understand, and have access to the scripture itself. Why should everybody learn? Is because ignorance is the devil's tool. And if we're ignorant of what is true, we'll fall for anything else. So why go to the, such an effort to remove God from society? 
because the spiritual power behind society doesn't want anyone to know the truth. Oh, but we weren't a Christian nation. Seems pretty Christian to me. See, education and faith are not on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Matter of fact, faith is one of the beacons that beckons us to be eternal students. Faith is what beckons us to always be learning, always be discovering, always looking at what God made to get a greater perception or perspective of who God is. Yet Satan has his foothold in our society. Jesus, he tells us a parable in the New Testament. It's one of the, uh, my favorite parables. It's a famous parable, the parable of the seed. The farmer scatters seed and it falls on different, different paths. And one of those, in, in the interpretation of the parable, one of those uh, seed falls on the footpath and birds swoop down and devour the seed before it could take root. And Jesus said that represents the enemy, the devil, swooping down to steal the word of God from people. To steal away the word of God. Just like the old deluder, Satan. And so what we see in our culture is that Satan is still stealing the word of God. He's swooping into homes, personal lives, schools, universities, wherever he can to steal the word of God away, to keep it from taking root in our families, our culture, and society. And his efforts are having its intended effect. I love Martin Luther. He also says this. He says, I'm afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the holy scriptures, engraving them on the heart of the youth. And what can we see as of late? In the news, in our culture, here and around the world, with the indoctrination of egregious teachings like CRT, and other things promoting confusion, even in some of our youngest children in our public school system, where now, in my opinion, I believe what we're seeing is public education being turned into setters or systems to advocate liberal propaganda and reinforcing madness, not teaching truth in many respects. As the psalmist declares the greatness of God is unsearchable in Psalm 145, he also declares in verse 4 that each generation, somebody say generation, let each generation tell its who? Tell its children of your mighty acts. Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts and let them proclaim your power. God has an interest in education. He has an interest in passing down revelation from generation to generation Passing God's revelation is inherent, inherent in God's desire for his people. Over and over again in the scriptures, we see God's interest in teaching from one generation to another. In Deuteronomy 4.10, as he's giving the laws on Mount Sinai, God tells Moses, Never forget the day when you stood before the Lord your God at Mount Sinai, where he told me, Summon the people before me, and I will personally instruct them. Somebody say, instruct them. God himself is going to instruct the people. They will learn. Somebody say learn. They will learn to fear me as long as they live, and they will teach. Somebody say teach their children to fear me also. God is going to give the revelation. He wants you to learn, and then you to turn around and become the teacher to the next generation. 
This is his will. This is his process. This is his desire. And not just his passion to teach, but he also wants our desire to learn. Psalm 51.6 reveals the heart that God has that wants his people to have. The psalmist says, you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. God's heart is to teach you, to lead you into truth. So even before we take our first breath, God is teaching us wisdom. He's speaking into and over our lives. And how do we respond? Psalm 25, 5. God, lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. And all day I put my hope in you. God wants to teach you. He wants to give you revelation. And his desire is that you would want to learn from him. It's the glory of God to conceal, but the glory of his people to seek it out. Now, we often picture in pop culture, this, sometimes you see this in cartoons, but you know when a new idea comes about or a new thought, what happens? The light bulb goes off, right? What's that symbolize? There's something being illuminated. There's something coming to being. Before there was darkness, there was ignorance. Now there's a light that is that's come on, that's shedding light on the situation, the circumstance, or the, or the subject. And in John 1, 4 through 5, here's what the Word of God says about Jesus. He says, the Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Oh God, we ask you in Jesus' name to shine the light right now. God, that your light would shine, that every head would have a light bulb turn on right now in Jesus' name. As we elevate you, Jesus, God, speak, move, heal, and restore. Lord, you want to teach. We're ready to learn in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus came to bring the light, to eliminate or illuminate dark minds and heavy souls, to open the eyes, as we discovered last week. He came to set the captive free, open prison doors, and open the eyes of the blind. This is what he came to do. And not just physical blindness, but also spiritual blindness. And as he came, he didn't just reveal earthly knowledge, which he did through his parables, but also divine knowledge. He came to give us more than just earthly information. In John 17, this is the prayer he prays just before his crucifixion. And here's, he's praying to the Father. Here's what he tells the Father. He says, I've revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. And you were all, they were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. Why do they know? They didn't know before, but they have learned from Jesus. Now they know everything that Jesus had is a gift. I have passed on to them. I taught them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. So Jesus came. He came as the light to bring light to everyone, and how did he do it? He revealed the knowledge of God. He revealed the knowledge of the kingdom, special knowledge. And all who embraced that knowledge, who became students, disciples of Jesus Christ, were then brought into this new relationship with him. They are now ones that the Father knows. They belong to the Father. So Jesus came to reveal the Father, to show us what he was like, to reveal our purpose 
inspire us with awe and wonder of holy things. And he's invited us into a journey to find true knowledge, true knowledge that is found in him. His disciples, all throughout scripture, always calling him a specific name. They were calling him rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Teacher. He's inviting not just his 12 to call him rabbi. He invites the whole world to call him rabbi. The whole world to learn. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is the key verse today. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus is making an invitation to you to come. Come and learn. Not just to become smarter, but because he has something for you. There's something that with the knowledge that God gives you that changes you, that helps deliver you, to help set you free. And I, and I love this, and just like Scott said in his announcements, here it says, take my yoke upon you. Somebody in our prayer time either this morning or during testimony time in church prayed about breaking yokes. My, my wife, you know, we don't really share about what I'm speaking on except just lightly. Well, here's kind of the general subject matter. In her prayer, she's pr she prayed a verse I'm going to quote later in the message. So I know God has a word that he's brewing for some of you today. Somebody here... There's information, there's knowledge God is wanting to give you that he wants you as a good student to receive because he has something for you. He's our teacher. He's our great teacher. And I know we have some teachers in the house today. And I just think that our educators have an impossible job. I really do. And I would just like to honor you for a minute. So if you are a teacher, either you are a current teacher or you were a teacher in public school, private school, home school, preschool, any kind of school, would you please stand for just a minute? Amen. We honor you. We honor you. We thank you. It is an impossible job. Thank you. You can be seated. I just, I, I have limited knowledge, but I have some insight on some of the requirements and expectations, and I don't know how y'all still have hair. I mean, seriously, like, who do you go to? I mean, that's really, that's amazing. But think about, do you remember your favorite teacher in school? I remember my favorite teacher. My family, we moved around a lot. You know, a few times when we were younger because my parents were in ministry. And so we moved from Massachusetts to Texas and then to Missouri. And, and when we moved from Massachusetts to Texas, I began to really struggle in school. Their education system was different, and they lost my records. And so I just, I got yanked around a little bit. And I just really began to struggle, and, and, uh, and not just with the material, but also socially. And so it was really hard for me. And I got to a place where I hated school. I hated school. Anybody want to give me an amen? Yes. So I didn't look forward to school. Matter of fact, I switched from one school to another within my own city because I just had such a hard time at that particular school. And finally, we got to this new school, and I'm in uh, my fifth grade year, starting a new year, new school, and Miss Munson is my teacher. And I loved Miss Munson. I went from hating school to loving school. She taught in a way that I could understand, but, but it just changed my whole dynamic on what I thought about school. 
you know, it's not, the thing about a teacher, if you think about what makes your teacher your favorite teacher, it's not about the knowledge they have, but it's about the connection they make. It's about the connection they make. It's not about the knowledge they impart to your mind. It's about what they do to impact your heart. So even when you're unlocking the new knowledge in a student, the deepest impact is one that impacts the heart and not the head. And the sad part thing is, is I had to leave halfway through that year because we moved from Texas to Missouri. And it started my cycle of dysfunction all over again. But I'll always remember that for like six months, I liked school. And, and, and it was a result of Miss Munson and my favorite teacher. I had some teachers that we didn't like so much in school. Matter of fact, in college, I had a professor. Uh, I don't know what was wrong with her. But she, she required every student to stand when she walked in the room. She didn't even have a doctorate degree. And I don't even know if she had a degree for the subject she was teaching. But she required it. And I don't, like, I don't know anybody that I knew. We couldn't stand her. Why? Because she had a chip on her shoulder. It was about her. I had another professor that I think thought it was funny if he could make everyone in his class fail. Because he made it incredibly difficult, was hard to work with, and he acted smug whenever you had a question. Nobody liked those kinds of teachers. Nobody, nobody was impressed by them either. And, and so if you think about the teachers that, that made an impact, it's the ones that ministered to your heart, to your soul. And the thing about Jesus, he's not just our teacher. He's the best teacher. He's the best. For he's not only humble and gentle at heart, but what we get from learning from him is rest for our soul. It's rest for our soul. You see, in him, our minds don't simply light up with revelation. But in him, our hearts come alive. Whew. You want to park there for a minute? Out of his heart are rivers of living water. Where you won't thirst anymore. So yes, Jesus is interested in teaching. Most of his time he's revealing the Father, the truth of God's word, the kingdom of God, what it's like. Why? Because the, the proverb says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the knowledge of the holy, is the beginning of understanding. And so when he came, he came to reveal divine knowledge. Because that's how we can truly know the truth. The psalmist writes, it is the fool that says in their heart, there is no God. The foolish lengths people go to and the absurd things people believe to make sense of a world apart from God is astounding. Like, I know there's some brilliant people who've spent a lot of time in the sciences to defend the theory of Darwin's evolution, but it makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't matter how many discoveries in biology we make that say you can't go from one species to another because it will be the end of the organism. It is a belief system. Why? Because in order to deny God, you have to believe something else. 
So let's just believe our cousins are apes. Let's just believe that we developed from a single-celled organism, which Frederick Hoyle and Cambridge University has proven mathematically there's not enough time in the universe for natural uh, evolution to even occur. But yet we teach this as if it's true. Our science books say, well, the world's 60 billion years old. Who says? What's the scientific method? You have to observe it, you have to test it, and you have to repeat it. Who was there at the beginning? But God. Ain't nobody doing anything scientific believe in Darwin's theory of evolution. But we believe these things. Why? Because apart from God, we do foolish things. Apart from God, we do, we'll believe anything apart from God. The scripture says a fool says in his heart there is no God. And we can see this in our day, every day, the lengths that we go to to try to live a life apart from him. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father but by me. Truth is rooted in God, and the path to truth is only found in Jesus Christ. You can't discover true wisdom apart from him. You can't discover truth apart from God. And you can't get to God without first going through Jesus Christ. He's the centerpiece of knowledge and understanding. I, I love watching debates from different groups online. There's a guy right now named Jordan Peterson who's really championing this idea that you can't have a grounded, objective uh, uh, perspective of morality without rooting it in belief in God. Like you can argue about what you think God is, but you have to have an objective moral framework for morality or else everything else is just subjective. And then you have guys like Sam Harris who are atheists who are trying to defend this position that you can have a moral framework that's rational without having God in the mix. But no matter what they say and how smart it sounds, it still boils down to it's still a subjective understanding. If it's your opinion versus mine, what's the objective reality? There's no standard. So there's nothing you can quantify or even measure it by. And we can see this over and over and over again. And what we get from Jesus, it's this call to learn. Call and come and get wisdom. Come and get true knowledge and understanding. Come and learn from me because I am not just a teacher. I am a good teacher. And I'm inviting you, not just so I can reveal truth, but as any good teacher would, they would have a well-thought-out, well-crafted lesson plan with an end in mind. It's not just, I want to teach you a concept, but I'm taking you somewhere. I'm taking you so that from when, where we start to where we end up, you're not the same as what you used to be. And Jesus has an end in mind for everyone who would follow him. In John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said to the people who believed, you're truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That right now, there's a darkness that you're in. Your mind is blind because the enemy's been sowing you a bunch of falsehood. There's a bunch of stuff trying to lead you away from true knowledge and understanding, and the world's covered in darkness because of this thing called sin that you can't get out of, you can't avoid, but you wrestle with every day. But if you come to me, 
All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. If you remain faithful to my teaching, you'll come to know truth, and the truth will set you free. And John 8, 36 is a promise. Who the Son has set free is truly free. Your eyes open up, and you can see the light. See, Jesus' plan and the end of his lessons leads to freedom and spiritual freedom which ultimately will affect the world we live in. Because only he can produce a world that's filled with the glory and goodness of God. Do you realize that's what we all want? Like if you think about the battle happening in Ukraine, do you think the Ukrainians want to be fighting the Russians? Do you think the Russians want to be fighting the Ukrainians? Ain't nobody want to shoot at anybody, and ain't nobody want anyone shooting at them. But we do it for pride and power and politics. People just want to live their lives. They want to be in peace and harmony. I guarantee you the store owners in California want to just run their business and make a living for their families. They don't want people coming in and ripping them off, and then their DA is not doing a dang thing about it. We want peace, we want harmony, we want unity, we want everyone to be fruitful and multiply. We want the vision God had for the world, but when we go opposite God's direction, God's plan, what do we see? We see brokenness, dysfunction, and evil. See, the enemy, the devil, that old deluder, Satan, wants to pull you away from Jesus. And he wants to rob you of the truth. Do you ever wonder why the tree in the Garden of Eden that caused sin is called the tree of knowledge? The knowledge of what? Good and evil. There's a choice. There's good and evil. There's knowledge that blesses, but there's also evil knowledge that curses. There's true knowledge that sets people free, and there's knowledge that condemns and enslaves. And what Satan does is he blurs the lines so you can't tell the difference. He blurs the lines. He blinds the minds of those who don't believe. The enemy is the father of lies, false beliefs that are meant for your destruction. This is why we have people wrestling with more confusion today than ever. They don't know who they are. They don't know why they were created. They don't have any purpose. We've bought into the lies the enemy has been sowing into the world for so long, trying to create a world devoid of God with no fear or reverence from God. And since there's no fear of the Lord, there's no true knowledge or true wisdom. In Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And if you don't fear the Lord, you can't know the truth. You can't tell the difference between evil and good. And, and uh, Paul tells us in the last days, people will call evil good and good evil. Why? Because they can't tell the difference. They don't know the difference. We can plainly see this in our culture today. Right now, our Supreme Court is getting ready to, or our Congress is getting ready to, is examining a new Supreme Court nominee who will determine the interpretation of the laws of the land. One of the highest offices in our nation who cannot tell us what is a woman when she herself is one? We're in a place where our leaders, 
who are going to be enforcing laws, creating laws, interpreting laws, can't even tell us what is true. And I know people struggle with all different stuff, but we have grown men believing their women wanted to compete against actual women in sports. It's not fair. But for the sake of hurting feelings, we're penalizing the girls that have spent their lives training for this moment and this hour so that we can placate somebody's feelings. What's wrong with this world? It's devoid of truth. We can see who's winning the war. The lies and poisonous arguments the enemy is making against God is drawing people away from where they can find truth into greater confusion, pain, dysfunction, and ultimately destruction. And so what we can see in Jesus is not just revelation of truth, but how to overcome the lies of the enemy. See, one of the insidious things the enemy does is he implants thoughts in your mind, especially when you're a child. Thoughts that cause shame, that cause confusion, things you would never want to tell anyone else, makes you think they're your own thoughts, makes you hide, makes you keep it hidden for the fear of it ever getting out, to isolate you. So why? So like seed, those thoughts can germinate over years to twist and manipulate you. He wants to rob the seed of the word out of your heart, but he wants to implant poisonous, cancerous seed into your heart that he can use against your identity in Christ. He can use against your purpose, your value, your understanding of right and wrong, pull you away from faith and God's word. And if these lies aren't dealt with, they can have a major influence in your life. They can alter your perspective and your perception. And even your experience. So how do we overcome these lies? How, as Jesus is our teacher, what is he showing us in his word to overcome the lies of the enemy? The first thing we see is Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is what Paul says. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. Give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the way to truly worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person. Somebody say new person. A new person by changing the way you what? By changing the way you think. So if it's the old person, there's something wrong with how you think. To become a new person, you got to change how you think. Then. Somebody say then. So it's connected. You want to be a new person? You want to have a new mind? Once you have this new mind, you'll be able to learn God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. What is he saying? He's saying until your mind is renewed, you can't discern what God's will is. You can't discern between right and wrong, good and evil. So you have to be renewed in your mind. And your body needs to be in subjection to the will of God as an act of worship. So learn from God. Learn from Jesus. Let Jesus transform you. And how does he do it? He changes your behavior, and he changes your mind. This is God's plan for you. It's a twofold process. When your actions and your thoughts are in line with the Word of God, you will know God's will for your life, which means you'll be able to recognize, discern between right and wrong, good and evil, 
holy and unholy. But here's the catch. As we've explored God's creation, what we've discovered is before you can change a behavior, you have to change the mind. So here Paul says, offer your bodies to God. Submit your actions. Submit your bodies, your whole physical self to the Lord as an act of worship and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And often what we get stuck in is this place, well, if I just do right, then I'll be new. Then I'll be made new. Then, then, then everything else will come into being. Then my beliefs will, will follow my actions. And we white-knuckle good actions, good behavior that's kind of counter to how we think and how we feel, how we believe. We do this because we think we should, but nothing inside is actually changing. And so we're doing the right thing, but we're doing it from the wrong attitude and from the wrong place. And what happens is we burn out, we fizzle out, and we say, man, that God stuff just doesn't work. And we give up. And we walk away. Or we struggle. Here's what we know scientifically by studying the brain. God has revealed to us is that your actions are preceded by thoughts not the other way around. Your emotions are preceded by thoughts, not the other way around. And we can react emotionally very quickly, can't we? Like, boom. So if you think about how fast you become emotional, your thoughts are moving at even faster speed. So if you want to get to the root or core of an issue in your life, to change a behavior, to break an addiction, to break something that is causing you pain, dysfunction, confusion, that the enemy is using to create struggle in your life. Don't start with the action, trying to white-knuckle your transformation. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Guard your heart. Issues are rooted in our heart. Where does sin abound? In the heart. The sin inside begins to manifest outside, which is why Jesus came to change hearts and lives. Now, the word heart is synonymous with the word soul. And your soul is comprised of three separate parts, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Your mind is what you think. Your will is what you want. And your emotions are how you feel. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God's not given us a spirit of fear, feel, or timidity, feel, but a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline, or a sound mind. So what comes from God? A sound mind. What do we get from Jesus? Knowing the truth, the knowledge of the Lord is a sound mind. The ability to discern his will, to know the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, truth from Lies. With a sound mind, you can make right choices. And again, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord, those who fear the Lord will hate evil. You can't hate evil unless you fear the Lord. You can't discern between good and evil without a sound mind. Therefore, I hate pride, arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. This comes from the Lord. So if a sound mind comes from the Lord, then what should we see in a corrupt world? A confused mind. If a sound mind is from God, then the only alternative for a world lost in darkness is a world of confusion. And I think we would all agree, we see that plain as day. And the reason why we see confusion is not just because of the enemy's lies, 
But if thoughts precede action and emotion, the only way to corrupt our perception, our thoughts, and our feelings is to reverse the process. If Jesus wants to inform our mind, to inform our will, to then inform our emotions, the greatest way to create confusion is to reverse the process. Let our emotions inform our desires, which then inform how we think. God spoke to me. I was at a, a pastor's meeting this past week. He spoke to my heart about much of the struggles I deal with. You know, I've been honest about struggling with addictions to food and other stuff in my life and just habits and behaviors and a, a lot of stuff that I've wrestled with. And God just spoke to me and just said, you've been led by your emotions for most of your life. You have let how you feel lead what you think, what you desire, and even down to just simple things. Man, it's cold, better go get a coat on. Man, I'm hungry, better go get something to eat. Like, I let how I feel ultimately determine whether or not, what I'm going to do, whether it's right for the moment or not. You know, I try to track my calories on, on an app. That's humbling. You know, I try to stay to a certain amount of calories every day. And when I look at my app, I'm like, man, I'm hungry. I need to go get a snack. I'm like, oh, I've almost eaten all my calories. I have to make a decision. Do I go by what I know I should do or what I feel like I should do? There's a difference. And what has brought a lot of confusion into our world, and we see this in how we even talk about certain subjects, as we validate feelings and emotions, which validate desire without regard to whether or not it's true. Whether or not it's true. And I think many of us fall into that same trap, not having a healthy soul, because we've rearranged the order of importance. We have placed feelings over the mind, over rational thought. And we've let our desires be blown by the winds of our emotions. So when I let how I feel, which is not objective, determine my thoughts, which are subjective, or my feelings are subjective, they can lead me astray. And feelings are not the barometer of truth. Feelings are just meant to inform you about what you're experiencing in any given situation. But your feelings are not the barometer of truth. What is the barometer of truth? The Word of God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And if I'm reacting to something going on based on my feelings, I may or may not be in alignment with the truth. Because emotions don't define what truth is. They can be deceiving. This is what the Bible calls to be carnally minded, to be led by the flesh. Catherine was speaking about this in her testimony. If I'm led by my feelings and my emotions, I'm going to be led by my flesh, myself, versus the Spirit and the Word of God. But when I let how I know, when I'm led by my renewed mind that's been transformed by the Word, and I let God's Word inform what I should want, that will ultimately determine how I feel because I'm no longer led by my emotion but by conviction. Why don't I steal from the store when I see something that I want? I know before God it's wrong. 
So I don't desire to steal because I don't want to break the heart of my holy God. Why do I try to live in a way that makes other people prefer other people better than myself? Because that's what I see in my teacher, Jesus Christ, who bent down to wash his disciples' feet. Why is pride and arrogance something I should shun? Because I know that's opposite to who God is. When our feelings and our emotions are in charge, they're easily manipulated. But when we bring all things into subjection to the word of God, we're able to see clearly. In Luke 6, Jesus says, out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. Which means what's going on inside will be on display on what's happening outside. And if you want to know whether you're believing truth or a lie, look at your life. Look at what you pursue. Look at your desires. Look at what's coming out in your life because what is going on inside will be manifesting on the outside, which is why, beloved, we have to guard our hearts. We have to guard what we let come into our minds, come into our hearts, and inform us on how we should think. In Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, as I begin to close, tells us exactly how to guard our hearts. He says, we're human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And after you've become fully obedient, we'll punish everyone who remains disobedient. This is a process that will continue until we see Jesus face to face and sit on the throne with him in victory. So what are we doing? From now until Jesus comes, the way we partner with the Holy Spirit to find the freedom Jesus came to offer, to renew our minds, is simply this. We take rebellious thoughts captive, and we submit them to be obedient to Christ. We stand against false arguments, and we bring them unto subjection to the truth. Beloved, we can't change issues of the soul through behavior modification. You have to heal the soul with the spirit. So that means when a thought comes into my mind that is contrary to the word of God, I say, in the name of Jesus, I take that thought captive. I'm not going to entertain it. I'm not going to reason through it. I'm going to say, no, that violates the word of God. That violates the truth. I reject this thought. I come out of agreement with this thought in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I embrace your truth, which says, fill in the blank. I take those thoughts captive. I submit it to be obedient to Christ. Philippians 4.8, Paul says, fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, right, and pure, lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. You have the ability to fix your thoughts on whatever you want to think about. And so whatever you entertain is what is going to affect how you feel and what you desire. And here Paul is saying, God has broken the power of sin. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to live the way the world is telling you you need to live or do what the world is telling you what you need to do. You don't even have to go the way your emotions are leading you. Why? Because the spirit's greater than the flesh. 
So here's what happens when you're in that moment of crisis and something's coming against you. You have a thought that's contrary to what you know to be true before the throne of God and according to the word of God. You say, no, I'm not going to agree with that. I'm not going to put faith in that. I'm going to come out of agreement with that. I'm going to believe the truth of God in the name of Jesus. God, don't let any thought stay in my mind that violates your word or your will. God, reveal your truth to my heart. God, I'm feeling this type of way. I have this feeling and emotion right now, but I know you've not given me a spirit of fear or timidity. Anger, is, uh, unrighteous anger is not from you. Hate's not from you. Selfishness is not from you. I have all this stuff going on. Bitterness is not from you. I'm going to come out of agreement with these thoughts and feelings in Jesus' name. I'm going to submit my life and my heart to you as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, praising you for the renewed mind. And then you'll know what's true. Because you'll be experiencing the power of the freedom in Christ. Beloved, we're no longer slaves to sin, our emotions, or the flesh. But our teacher has come to illuminate us to a sound mind. That we might experience life and life more abundantly. Freedom. And he's not just interested in your freedom. But when Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, go into all the world. Make disciples. Teach these disciples everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you. Jesus doesn't want to just transform your life. He wants to transform your culture. He wants to transform your community, your family. He wants each generation to tell his children so that they can proclaim the glory of God. And he has invited us into this process. Learn from me. Come and learn from me and find rest for your souls. Let's bow for prayer as the response music begins to play. Lord Jesus, you are a good teacher. You're the best teacher. And I praise you, God, that in a world bathed in darkness, full of confusion, where different groups are fighting against one another and no one can seem to get along. Their battles even being waged over nations right now. Many people losing their lives. Many people scarred and tra traumatized. God, this world is filled with pain and suffering. No matter how many technological advancements we make, it's not getting better, God. We're not inching closer to the vision you had for us in the Garden of Eden, God, because sin is leading us the other way around. The enemy is leading us the other direction. But Jesus, you said when you were here, you said the kingdom of God is among you. That means we're not far away from experiencing everything we want to experience. But we're not going to find it apart from you, Jesus. We're going to find it through you. So Jesus, I pray right now that you teach us we want to learn from you. We submit ourselves as a living sacrifice. We ask you, God, to renew our minds. Teach us how to take our thoughts captive. How to bring our thoughts in subjection so that our will and our emotions glorify you. And help us, show us how to teach others to live victoriously as you're teaching us every day. And Lord, we look forward to the day where you're going to return and you're going to settle all this mess. When you sit on the throne, 
all things will be made new. But God, until that day, Lord, we submit to you. And we're thankful that you're a patient God. You are kind. You are generous. Filled with mercy and unfailing love. And we just praise your name. Holy Spirit, I ask you to begin even now to do the work that you are going to do in this place. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want to ask you a few questions as our prayer team begins to come forward. What do you need to unlearn from the world and renew your mind with by learning from Jesus? What do you need to unlearn from the world and relearn from Jesus? What have you let the world tell you? What have you chosen to believe? What comes against God's word? What comes against God's will for your life that you've embraced? Maybe you believe God created the world that it happened by a cosmic accident over billions of years. Or you believe that you are a cosmic accident through an accident by your parents. See, I believe God's word says we're fearfully and wonderfully made. God planned this. He created it and he created you. Do you believe you're accepted, forgiven, clean, and new? Or do you still wrestle with guilt and shame from the things you've done in the past, things the enemy wants to continually remind you about? Do you believe you can do all things through Jesus who gives you strength? Or do you believe you can't because you're just focusing on your earthly limitations? Do you feel unworthy, not good enough, unacceptable? Or do you believe your value and your worth because of what Jesus did for you on the cross? Do you feel too weak to break that addiction? Do you feel too scared to try something new because you've been told your whole life that you're unsuccessful, you'll always be unsuccessful? Beloved, Jesus has a better word. Jesus had says something differently about you. He says, you're more than a conqueror. You're more than successful. In him, you can accomplish wonders. What thoughts are you thinking that you need to surrender and submit to the authority of Jesus? What do you need to take captive? What's causing you shame? Why are you scared that if anyone found this out, they'd think I'm a weirdo or they'd avoid me, that they'd think I'm a special case of messed up? A fear of rejection is keeping you from finding the freedom Jesus wants to deliver. Beloved, as the church, we are called to bear each other's burdens, to confess our sins to each other, pray for each other that we can find healing and wholeness, and that's what our teacher wants to lead you into today. He wants you to learn from him, to find rest from your soul. Why? Because he is gentle and humble at heart. So whatever God is speaking to you, whatever you're wrestling with today, I encourage you to come forward, kneel down at these first row of seats, or come and grab one of our prayer team members, and let us pray with you. Let us partner with you. Let us help you come out of agreement with some falsehood some lies you've been believing, and to come into agreement with the truth that God's power to set you free will be released in your life today. 
for the next few moments you come and then we'll pray Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.